This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. bookcase listeners it is that time again i am kate gibson and i'm charlie gibson good to have you with us another week has passed another few books read and we have today the third of the shows that kate has put together on the horror genre but kate in this instance jennifer mcmahon is the author we're going to talk to in this instance while she adopts the title of being a horror writer or accepts the fact that she is i don't think she is this is one that i really liked Yeah, I get that this genre is not for everybody. And I think Jennifer McMahon, who we talked to today, Children on the Hill is her most recent, really stretches the genre. I don't even like using, you and I have talked before that the word horror comes with certain things that we're not terribly comfortable with. So I very much am comfortable calling this thriller or dark fiction. It is a really interesting modern take on the Frankenstein myth where she really talks about monsters and monster creators and why we create monsters. If you're going to give the genre a chance, please, I encourage you to give the chance with Jennifer McMahon because The Children on the Hill is terrific, and it's a great way of exploring this kind of writing. Yeah, Kate points out The Children on the Hill is the latest of her books. She's written many, and while I would call them there's sort of an undercurrent of dread, uh, as you said, dark fiction. But I don't know, horror to me, and, and I guess I've expressed it in the past couple of shows we've done, is a pejorative. And I, I'm surprised that writers of this ilk are quick to adopt it as a genre. And as you say, the horror section in some bookstores is very popular. The genre gets a lot of readers. And all of these readers seem to say it is, or all these writers, I'm sorry, that we've talked to seem to say it's a way for readers to work through their fears. Yeah, that a lot of these writers are working through things that are happening to them or have happened to them. And I love the way Jennifer McMahon puts it in The Children on the Hill. And we're about to let her read a quote from the book about why monsters are important in our lives. What do monsters give us as people? And in The Children on the Hill, there's a book within a book, and it's called The Book of Monsters. And this really, I think, sums up a lot of why Jennifer McMahon writes the way that she does. So I'll let her I'll let her read it. Here's why the world needs monsters, because they are us and we are them. Don't we all have a little monster hiding inside us, a little darkness we don't want people to see, the shadow self, the little voice that tells you to go ahead and eat that last cookie or the whole plate of them, maybe. And doesn't it feel good when you lose it, really lose it and rip things up, punch a hole in the wall, smash a bunch of bottles to smithereens? That's your monster self coming out. The world needs monsters, and monsters need us. That's your monster self coming out. The world needs monsters, and monsters need us. I'm not sure monsters need me, but I'll, I'll accept her. I'll accept her uh, her definition. I haven't had a monster who's well. Yeah, there were a couple of guys in high school, maybe, but. 
<laughs> I don't know if I would adopt the word monster for them, but I mean, as far as I was concerned, came close. Oh, but I think that's what's really interesting about the passage is monster can represent so many things. And I think it's really interesting. And, and I want to get to the interview, but I think it's really interesting that now we've talked to a couple of authors who say that they're frightened of a lot of things. And me, a big horror fan, I am also frightened of a lot of things. And so monsters give us a place to direct that. And I think Jennifer McMahon expresses that beautifully. And as the first writer, horror writer, that we talked to, Christopher Golden, said to you, which I, and said to both of us, that something that I've kept in mind, which is that people in this genre tend to be working through something. Mm-hmm. And Jennifer McMahon says, I think, I never knew what mother I was going to come home to, whether she mm-hmm. was going to be nice mom making cookies or ugly mom. She had a troubled childhood, and she says this is one way of working through it. Anyway, here's our delightful conversation, I thought, with somebody who writes, says she writes, not so delightful books. <laughs> Jennifer McMahon, I am so thrilled to have you in the bookcase. You are our third quote unquote horror author, but it's really, you are, I think, of the three we've talked to so far. We talked to Chris Golden and we talked to Josh Mallerman and you're our third. And I think you may be our most genre defying. I don't know that I would put you in horror or thriller. I mean, is that, is genre defying something you strive for? And do you define yourself? And if so, how? Oh my gosh, you're jumping right into the big questions. <laughs> First of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm super psyched to be here. I always cringe a little and get a little uncomfortable when people ask me what genre I write in because it's not something I'm really thinking about as I'm writing. My goal when I sit down to write is to write the story I most want to read. And for me, that inevitably takes me to dark places. You know, I, I went, I studied poetry as an undergrad and then for a year in grad school and I heard over and over again, write what you know, write what you know. And my own motto became write what scares you. Because I found that that's where the good stuff comes from when I like delve deep into myself and I'm writing from my own fears. So that's what I'm doing when I set out. Is it horror? I think yes. I think the further I go along my career, I'm leaning harder into horror. And then that brings us to the question of what is horror, right? And that's a big question. (laughs) And for me, horror as a genre is about exploring our own fears and getting them out there on the page and kind of taking the world we think we know and flipping it upside down and turning it inside out and saying, ha, see, things aren't the way you really think they are. Because it's interesting. I asked Josh Mallerman, do you think that people who write in this genre are fearless or that they're scared of everything? What do you think? (sighs) Oh, for me personally, I am scared of everything. (laughs) I am the biggest (laughs) scaredy cat for real. I'm the person who screams the loudest in the horror movies. I'm the person who reads like the latest Stephen King novel and has to turn on all the lights and go to bed. And I have this whole thing every night with, is it scarier to leave the closet door open or to close it? Because if I have it open, whatever's in there can come out. And if I close it, I can't see what's in there. And I I'm, I scare myself all the time. I'm always afraid. But yet I write these creepy stories. I don't know. It's like we're bound. There's two things you just said in one sentence, and I want to ask you about both. You said, I came to writing fiction from poetry. I'll get to that in a minute because I think that's a very interesting connection. But you also said you want to write what people want to read. What is it about human nature that you think makes people want to read stories of monsters and ghosts and stories of dread? I think it's human nature to be drawn to the things that torment and scare us. I think it gives us a feeling of control. For me personally, what drew me to the horror genre when I was a kid growing up is 
I was a very, believe it or not, fearful and anxious kid who's grown into kind of a fearful and anxious adult, although I've, I have more coping mechanisms now for sure. So I was a fearful and anxious kid and I was afraid of real life stuff. Like I grew up with my psychiatrist grandmother and my mother who struggled from mental illness and alcoholism. And I would be at school and I would come home from school and I was never sure what I was going to find when I got there. Was I was going to, was I going to find fun mom who had like baked cookies and wanted to go on an adventure? Or was I going to find kind of dark, depressed, moody, scary mom who, who knows what was going to happen? She might, or maybe I would get there and she wouldn't be there and she would disappear for weeks or months at a time. So I had those real fears going on. And the thing that I loved about horror fiction and horror movies and monster movies is that it was horror that I could control and I felt in control and I could read a book or watch a movie and it made me feel brave. And I was able to carry some of that bravery into my real life and feel like a braver, stronger person because I'd conquered this fictional monster or this fictional story in some way. I just finished The Children on the Hill and one of the quotes in it that really struck me, you write, there are many ways to make a monster many ways as there are monsters. But you must ask yourself, who is the real monster, the creature being made or the one creating it? Tell me you're not a monster, Jennifer. (laughs) (laughs) I have, I'm not going to answer yes or no. (laughs) I have been drawn to monsters since I was a kid. When I grew up, I felt like kind of an other, an outsider. And I feel like what drew me to monsters was their otherness and their outsiderness. They kind of dwell at the fringe. And we're afraid of them, yet we're linked to them. And I I loved monsters so much, so much so that when I was a kid, I checked a book out of the library about werewolves, and there was a spell in it for how to become a werewolf. And for real, I did this spell. I took the book into the woods. It was a full moon. I lit a candle. I did the spell. And I ended up going back to bed, being just a human girl and waking up and being a human kid and being so profoundly disappointed that I couldn't like be my full on monster self. And it was, although I may have told my brother that it actually worked and I was secretly a world. <laughs> and it was disappointing. And I ended up actually writing about that in, there's a scene in Children on the Hill where two of the girls, mm-hmm. the main right. characters do this same thing. Because it just stayed with me. And I thought it would be so much easier to become a monster and do monster things than to deal with human emotions and going to school and friends and all the messiness of being a human. Tell me your brother's neck is intact. Oh, it is. It is. So far. Yes, it is. But no, he did. He believed it for a while. I think I was really good at tormenting my, my little brother when I was little. The Children on the Hill, I've heard a lot of people describe it as, you know, I'm sure you've heard this many times, the modern Frankenstein, the modern Mary, a twist on Mary Shelley's work. And I, there's a lot of homage to Mary Shelley in here. Is Mary Shelley where the love affair began for you? Was Frankenstein your gateway drug? Frankenstein was not my gateway drug, but I, it is a book that I love and go back to again and again. And it was definitely a huge inspiration for this book. So much so that when I was writing it, and it took me years of trying to write this book because I, I wanted to write an homage to Frankenstein. And in the beginning, I was like, okay, I'm going to do a modern feminist retelling of Frankenstein. And in early drafts, it was pretty close to what Frankenstein was, but it didn't feel right. And it didn't, it felt very forced and it didn't feel like I was telling the right story and the story that wanted to be told. And that's the thing about my writing is I find that when I force things, when I have an idea of where things should go and I force them and I try to shoehorn them into what I think they should be, the writing is terrible. (laughs) I have to just kind of let the story tell itself and let it show me where it wants to go. And for me, that happened when I discovered the character of Vi and I met Vi, who's the girl, the protagonist in Children on the Hill. And 
once I got her voice and I showed, I started with that opening scene of her reading Frankenstein on her grandmother's porch. That was my doorway into the story. Mm. But I, you know, I love Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I absolutely do. And I, I revisited it and I had so much fun because the kids in the book are, you know, they have a monster club and they watch monster movies. And I had so much fun revisiting all those old monster <laughs> movies from my youth. Like Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein is a favorite and all those. So you said you came to writing fiction and the kind of fiction you write through poetry. That seems like an anomaly to me that they almost seem contradictory forms. Tell me how that connection came about. I had been writing poetry for a long time. I wrote poetry throughout. I wrote poetry in high school, and then I studied poetry in college, and I was in an MFA in writing program studying poetry. And it was kind of exhausting. My poetry was all, like, confessional, all about me, and autobiographical, all about me, 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 and my broken love affairs and my tragic past. And it gets exhausting. <laughs> um, and I, when I started experimenting with my poetry and I started writing prose poems and I started writing prose poems that were like fictional about people I sort of knew or about people I'd invented. And I started having so much fun. And one day, one of my prose poems kept getting longer and longer. And at first it was five pages, then it was 10 pages. And I sat back and I'm like, holy cow, this this isn't a poem anymore. Maybe I'm writing a short story. And then I got to 50 pages and 75. And I was, it was just the tip of the iceberg. And I realized oh, I'm writing a novel. And I had a panic attack because what did I know about writing a novel? <laughs> I knew a lot about language and metaphor, but I didn't know anything about plot and how to structure a novel. I'd written a few short stories in creative writing classes and short stories when I was a kid. So I took time away from the MFA program to see where the fiction writing thing took me, and I have been hooked ever since. The first three novels I wrote were what I think that my creative, my MFA professors, I was writing more for them than for me, I think. I was writing what I thought that people would want me to write, and it was boring. <laughs> it, was, you know, it was very character-driven, but the characters didn't really do anything except have a lot of deep internal thoughts, which is kind of boring. <laughs> And only when I sat down to write book four, which was several years later, I was like, this has to be the one or else I, I had quit my job at this point. And I told myself book four had to be the one. And I asked myself the question that I should have asked myself in the very beginning, which is what is the book I mm. most want to read? Mm. And the answer came back loud and clear, a ghost story. So I sat down to write my ghost story. Was there a moment that you knew, said to yourself, I can make a living at this? I can be a successful fiction writer, and that's going to be my life. And it was okay if that was an hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> After my that first book, Promise Not to Tell, came out, and it wasn't just friends and family who bought it, and it started to get a lot of press, and I started to hear from people, and it started to sell a ton of copies, then I started to realize, maybe I don't need to go back and get a day job. Maybe I can do this thing that I love most full-time, and mm. I've been doing it ever since. I'm interested. I want to go a little bit into how your mind works because I've, I've read a little bit about your process and I'm sort of fascinated. It sounds to me like you do sort of a beautiful mind thing when you're done with your novels. You lay them out on the floor. Where did that come from? What does it do? And how do you know you're done? And what are you lying on the floor? What's what's on oh. the floor? Good. Or is it the chapters? Good questions. Is it yeah. So I am a, what they call a pantser. I write by the seat of my pants. I do not plot or plan or outline. I start with an idea and I dive in and I go. 
and I write a really incredibly messy, chaotic first draft. <laughs> and during the time of writing this first draft, people will ask me, what's the book about? My agent will ask me, my family will ask me, and I'll say with all honesty, I don't really know. It's got <laughs> ghosts, maybe monsters. I'm not sure if the monsters are real. I'm not sure what's going on. I have no idea how the book is going to end. I have no idea what characters may pop up along the way. So I go on this journey and I get to what I feel like is the end. And then I take this mess of a thing and I print it. And then I lay it chapter by chapter all over the floor of my house. (laughs) Depending on how big it is, it depends what rooms I spread into. And it's only there when it's on the floor of my house, I start treating it like a collage and I kind of walk around it and I'm picking up chapters and I'm moving them and I'm saying, oh, this part that's in the middle, that actually belongs at the beginning. And this part that's in the beginning, I'm just going to throw that out entirely. That doesn't need to be there. That was me finding my way into the story. And then I'll see where there are holes and I'll take a piece of paper and I'll write, oh, I need a scene about X, Y, Z here. And I'll just reshuffle and I'll add things and I'll take things away and I'll just keep playing with it like it's a big collage until I feel like I truly understand what the story is and what it's about. And then is there a moment, though, like where you're like, yes, I'm done. I moved this last thing. That's it. There's a moment where I get tired of looking at it and I feel like it's as done as it can be for now. (laughs) And then I'll get all crazy and I'll do my, um, I I do an index card outline where I take an index card and do each scene and I color code them by timeline or by point of view or because my books are often a little complicated. I've I've sometimes got more than one timeline. I've got different points of view and I want to color code and make sure that things sort of spread out evenly and flows well. So then I do my outline and I make sure there aren't any plot holes. And then I sit down and I do my rewrite and I get the book up off the floor, which my family is always very (laughs) thankful for. (laughs) When my daughter was little, it was quite comical. You know, she would, she would say, Oh, I can't have friends over because mom's got her book all over the living room and dining room floors now. And and the cats have fun with it. (laughs) One of the characteristics I think of your novels is that there is a second act that you've got a twist in there. That's going to, surprise the reader. A, do you find that a necessary adjunct to your books? And B, do you know what that twist is going to be when you start out writing? I love putting what I call the midpoint twist in about halfway through the novel. I absolutely love it. I love books when I'm reading them, when they do that. And I love doing it in my own books. And I kind of see it as like kind of the tent pole in the center of the the tent that holds the whole story together in a way that everything else pivots around because at that midpoint moment, everything we think we know gets turned on its head. And I love doing that. Sometimes I know what it's going to be when I start out. Often I don't. Sometimes I have a vague idea and I think, oh, something big is going to come that's going to change everything. And I don't know what it is and how exciting I have to keep going to find out what it is. Children on the Hill, I knew what it was when I started out. When I started, once I got Vi's voice and I started real, getting to know the characters, I knew almost immediately what the, the midpoint twist was going to be. I apologize for what I'm about to do in advance. You are the first female horror author we've spoken to again, even though horror I use with bunny ears. I want to ask, why do you think, you know, to speak for women, why do you think that it's still such a male dominated genre, given that Shirley Jackson, for instance, in some ways is is the queen of the genre. I'm interested as to why you think it's still so male dominated. I don't know that it is still male dominated. At at this moment, I feel like there are a lot of diverse voices coming up. I feel like there are more women reading horror now than ever before. 
I feel like it's a time when readers are more open to horror and particularly women are maybe looking for stories by women about women. And I'm excited about the direction that it's going in right now. Me too. That's how I feel anyway. That's what I'm seeing. I'm, I also feel like there's some ex- exploration of social justice through horror, which I'm also loving. I love some of the stuff that Stephen Graham Jones is doing and Jordan Peele is doing. It's really it's fascinating. I love it. It's great stuff. It's an exciting time to be writing in the genre. Yeah. And it's an exciting time for people to start kind of reading outside of their comfort zones and exploring, dipping their toe into horror because there's, there's a book that could be, here's the air quotes thing again, horror that people, people, a lot of people even now hear horror and they think slashers and they think, Oh, I don't do that because it's too scary and too bloody and too gory. And not all horror is like that. But I think it's interesting because you describe beloved by Toni Morrison, which is, of course, a classic, a modern classic. Mm -hmm. You have described it as a ghost story. We actually struggle with the nomenclature of horror. Yeah. A dread story. Let's call it a dread story. Do you think of that as a horror? But I mean, in some ways, have people who don't read horror read horror? Oh, I definitely think so. I consider that what do we want to call it? Dark fiction with horror elements, a book that scares you, a book that, like I was saying, flips the world we think we know upside down and inside out. I mean, there's Beloved, there's uh, Shirley Jackson. Shirley Jackson is one of my favorite authors. We have always lived on the castle. Is that a horror novel? In my mind, it is because it Mm. deeply unsettles me. Same thing with Lord of the Flies and Cormac McCarthy's The Road Mm. and Catherine Dunn's Geek Love. I I consider all of those very sort of deeply unsettling Mm. novels Mm. that turned my world upside down and inside and out and scared me in some way. Interesting. That's a really interesting inclusion of books and an interesting definition. And you can go back. Even Shakespeare wrote ghost stories. Absolutely. It has been around a long, long time. Jennifer McMahon, a pleasure to talk with you. Oh, yeah. Uh, Really interesting to learn about your writing techniques and really interesting to see how you balance and put together a novel. Thanks for being with us. Oh, yeah. This is so fun. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. Thank you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. 
rapid fire for Jennifer McMahon. Scariest book you ever read? Ooh, I am going to go way back to my kid self and pick Amityville Horror because mm. it. I remember I was probably about 10 years old and I remember stealing the book from my mom's bookshelf and it was a book I wasn't supposed to read because she had deemed it too scary. And which made it all the more alluring, of course. And I've, I had never read anything so terrifying, but it also gave me the rush of knowing what it feels like to scare other people. Because what did little me do? I took that book to my friends and I read the scariest passages out loud to my friends. And at one point I was invited to a sleepover with all these other girls. And of course I packed my well-worn copy of Amityville Horror stolen from my mom's bookshelf. And I'm reading the scariest parts out loud to them and they all ended up screaming. Some of them were in tears. They went down the hall and woke up the, the host's parents to say, oh, Jennifer's reading this really scary book. And the weird McMahon kid was not invited to many <laughs> sleepovers after that. Scariest movie you ever saw. Oh, man. I think I'm going to have to say Rosemary's Baby because it mm. gets me every time. Mm -hmm. Every time I watch it, it, it just terrifies me. There's something so deeply unsettling about the whole story. If someone were starting on the Jennifer McMahon journey, what book do you think they should start with? Ooh, I would have to say my very first, Promise Not to Tell. Mm. Because it's it's the book that started it all. It's a, you know, ghost story, murder mystery. So I recommend that one. I also recommend, I always recommend my latest, you know. Mm -hmm. So Children on the Hill is also a good one. And I'm super, super, super excited about the book that is coming out in October, My Darling Girl, which is my take on demon possessions. My best trick to get through writer's block would be? Work on something else. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of putting aside the project that I'm stuck on and jumping around and working on a different different story until I get unstuck. You have multiple books going at the same time? I do. I kind of equate it to cooking. You know, I've got my front burner project. That's the next book that'll come out and that's due and that I've got the deadlines for. But anytime it's I hit a wall or if it's off with an editor or my agent, then I pull a book from the back burner forward and work on that a little bit. Yeah. And inevitably, if I'm stuck on the main project and I go and I work on something else for a little while, an idea will come to me for how to, for how to get unstuck. Ann Patchett told us there's a, a predictable process she goes through. On about page 10, she thinks this is junk. And about page 30, <laughs> she thinks, well, maybe I should keep going because it has some redeeming features. Page 80, I'm into it. And I think, hey, this could be pretty good. And by 130, I think this may be the best thing I ever wrote. Oh, that's great. I have a thing where about every time I get to the to the halfway point, about halfway, I realize this is the worst piece of garbage I've ever written. <laughs> and I want to throw the whole thing away and I get really discouraged and I'm sulky and I tell my family and my partner and daughter say, you're about halfway through the book, aren't you? You have to sit back down in the chair and keep going. You'll power through this. It happens every time. And then finally, our last question is a question we stole from Stephen Colbert, but we find it illustrative. In five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? Keep writing what scares me. So, Kate, I don't know if you had this effect on me. I'm going to read some more of her of her books. I've already ordered two of them. And I'm Yay. interested to see, because I really liked Children on the Hill. It was, uh, to me, a, a really good mystery slash dark fiction slash undercurrent of dread slash, okay, horror. Slash, there was a twist I didn't see coming. Slash, 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 slash. I just, I really enjoyed this conversation. And I love, as a matter of fact, she has right what scares you tattooed on her wrist. And she does? Uh, I, yes, she does. She and does. I, think oh, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah. So I think it's a, I think it's a really interesting motto to live by. And I like the idea that she feels like she's writing at her best 
when she's uncomfortable, because there are a lot of novels when she talks about novels that made her uncomfortable in her childhood. Lord of the Flies made me uncomfortable. Animal Farm made me uncomfortable. Would you call them horror? No, you wouldn't. But did they make you feel all warm and comfy cozy inside when it was over? No, absolutely not. They were, as is beloved, they're very bare portraits of humanity that have a little bit of a ghost story in them. So, And she says Amityville Horror was the scariest book she ever read. Did you read that? I'm sure you I've did. I've not read that. I've not read oh, that. But now, oh. but now I'm gonna. <laughs> Jennifer McMahon being the third, quote, horror, unquote, author that we've talked to, I thought it was important, and Kate did too, that we find somebody who really studies the genre, who approaches it from an academic standpoint. And I wasn't absolutely certain you'd be able to find one, but you did. I did. I really, I wanted us to talk to a horror expert who knew everything about the genre, but who didn't. I mean, God love her. She's done a lot for the genre, but didn't necessarily look like Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. So I asked the godfather of the genre who we spoke to first, Chris Golden, did he know of any sort of horror intellectuals? And by gosh, he did. Michael Arnzen is a Ph.D. professor at Seton Hill University in Pennsylvania, where he teaches a lot of different things, but he teaches in their popular fiction program and he teaches about horror and nostalgia. And he even had a dissertation, which was called the popular uncanny. He's won some Bram Stoker awards and has even written, Kate tells me some horror poetry. So here's our conversation with Michael Arnson. Michael Arnson at Seton Hill University. You're not only do you write within the genre, but you write a lot about the genre. Now I've read a lot of your writings about the genre. And so I want to start with, what hooked you? Like, what was the original spark for you that you were like, yeah, yeah, these are my people? My mom used to drop me off at the library during the you know, summer to do those summer programs that a lot of kids do in the libraries. I just remember I'd always be led into the children's section and it drove <laughs> me crazy. I want to know what was going on on the other side. So <laughs> after a few of those uh, trips, I would sneak over to the adult section and I started right away. I was drawn to science fiction, fantasy, and horror novels. So like an early on book I read was Jaws by Peter Benchley. And that, you know, I think that really opened my eyes to a lot of things. <laughs> Some of it maybe I was too young for. You know, I, I was in the military for a couple of years before I went to college and all that. And I was just voraciously reading horror novels. So when I got to college, they were like, I, you know, I was talking to counselors and so forth. What should I do with my life? <laughs> they're like, do what you love or what do you like? And I was telling them, well, I love to read these books. And they said, well, maybe consider English. I was like, no way. There's no job in that. <laughs> but I was learning research as I was learning just how far this horror genre goes back in time. Horror has existed across the entire span of literary history because people are constantly preoccupied with what happens after you die. And people are afraid of death and threats to our body, threats to our mind. It's really like the thriller genre, but it's a constant theme across time. A good friend of our podcast is Otto Penzler, who runs a bookstore in New York called The Mysterious Bookshop. And he runs into people who come in and say, well, I don't read mysteries. I don't read thrillers. And he said, really? You haven't read Dickens? You haven't read Shakespeare? Those are all very much writers of mysteries and thrillers. How about you? When people say, I don't read horror, you say... Now that I'm older and more experienced and have like taught and, and studied literature, to me, I'm just always on the lookout for horror in every genre. Well, it might be Shakespeare, but, you know, inevitably the name Edgar Allan Poe would come up <laughs> because, you know, to me, he's the prime American author who 
not only created the mystery and thriller genre on many levels, but also the horror genre. Because not necessarily because he was writing about goblins or, you know, creatures of the night, but he was really interested in the dark side of the human mind. And my predilection is for those kind of stories that actually aren't just about throwing blood in your face and making you respond with just a shock of that, but, you know, really getting into the emotion of fear. To me, horror is a really interesting genre because it's dominated. Like, I think anybody who likes psychology or majored in psychology or liked a psych class, they're probably into the horror genre. Every genre has its schlock. But in horror, what to you separates a book from being schlock and a book that is literature? The difference between schlock and literary fiction, Charlie, would for me, would really be the quality of the prose. You know, it almost reads like poetry, even though it might be describing, I don't know, the fissures on a skull or something like that. And there's an artistry to the writing where it's sublime. It transcends the content. It's not just about the action that's being described, like maybe a script might give a director's cue, but it's more kind of getting me to experience it, whether it's something horrifying or not, by appealing to my senses, by making literary illusions, by kind of tapping into my humanity on some level. To me, those are the elements that really make it literary. It, it has a maybe a theme. It's exploring that or raising an issue that might be bigger than just the plot itself, but really something that transcends like human issue or human concerns. You talked a little bit about the way we process through horror. The last few years in this country have been really frightening. We've faced an honest to God pandemic. We're divided. Um, and in some ways, I think Americans are frightened of each other. So what I'm wondering is, have we started to really see the effects of the last few years in horror? And how do you think it will change the genre, if at all? Well, <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, you know, I remember like some of the, uh, Horror stories in the nineties were about, were about things like the Ebola virus and how that was, you know, outbreak, you know, all the, all our concerns about these things that we might have seen on the news or heard about through fiction writers would take these and try to, you know, really ground it in. How does a human being even process this trauma? How do people survive when their bodies are being threatened or they're in a situation that might you know, end their life or they might lose their family over it or their life is just going to be changed radically and permanently. And fiction explores that through the imagination of the writer and invites the reader to process their own kind of anxieties about these topics, but on a level that they might be blind to. Like we might not realize horror has always been a place where people go to process their nightmares. You know, we give people something to do with that. And it's when people don't have an outlet for their anxieties, when they feel disconnected from the human race because they're so alone in their fears, those are the people that either have the breakdowns and go, you know, a mental illness that develops like a PTSD about it, or, you know, they're, they become just sad, lonely. They're not connected with their fellow man. And so, yeah, I'm going to be an optimist, uh, a rosy-eyed, whatever the expression is, person, and say horror connects people <laughs> to each other. And, it, you know, it actually helps. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, Michael. This has been really illuminating. Michael Anson, thank you so much for being in the bookcase. My pleasure. It's great to talk to you guys. We talked about Michael Arnson's horror poetry. <laughs> What's he call his anthology? I love some of the titles of his books. He's got one called Sportuary, which I love. 
One of his books about poetry is called Gorlitz, Unpleasant Poetry and Dying with No Apologies to Martha Stewart. So he is somebody who gets horror and understands what also makes it fun. So I loved talking to him. Please go pick up his books. He's awesome. We will remind you of the people who make this podcast possible. And when we finish, a final thought from Jennifer McMahon. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio in partnership with Good Morning America. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with Surecam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our supervising producer, and Laura Mayer and Simone Swink are our executive producers. We give special thanks to Taylor Rhodes, Amanda McMaster, and Sarah Russell of Good Morning America, and Josh Cohen, Nania McLean, and Cameron Shertavian at ABC Audio. For writers, I think it's important to write the book you most want to read. And for readers, I challenge you to read widely and challenge yourself to read stuff outside of your comfort zone. You might find something you truly love and something that sucks you in in the most surprising places. Mm-hmm.